0: Okay, we are uh, we are in Romans chapter nine. We've been in it for a couple of weeks now. Uh, two weeks ago we did the first five verses, and last week we did uh, verses six through thirteen. And uh, today I want to pick up with fourteen. And I only want to really honestly try to do five verses, but uh, we'll see how far we get because they're as I said they're. There's quite a bit to talk about in these verses down through verse 18. Uh, Let's just read those first 18 verses of the chapter just again to get the context and remind ourselves of some of the things we've talked about. And then we'll do some review and go on from there. He says in verse 1, he says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers? And from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires okay now uh last week we looked at uh, as i said we were looking at verses 6 through 13 and uh, and i do want to just uh Uh, kind of elaborate a little bit more, clarify a little bit more some of the things we said last week. Uh, But before I do that, what do you remember are some of the things that we observed there in those verses 6 through 13 last week.
1: Of the covenant promise, not that Mm he's salvation, but that it was he's in the Messianic messianic, not that he was, because some people even believe that Esau, but it was a comparison that I love Jacob so much that it's like I hate Esau, but it's not, maybe wasn't. Okay. Okay.
0: So you've actually hit on about three key things that we talked about there uh last week. One is that the discussion here in uh, he starts out right at the beginning of the chapter he starts talking about Israel and his love for Israel and and very clearly at the beginning of the chapter he's talking about what we call ethnic Israel. In other words, Paul's relatives according to the flesh, okay? And uh, and so he begins by talking about Israel. And so the whole discussion, uh, beginning in chapter 9 and all the way through chapter 11, the whole discussion is a discussion about where Israel fits in redemptive history. That is the question that Paul is addressing. and uh, And so... Uh, the real issue uh, the real issue here in these verses that we're looking at is, as uh, she pointed out, is he's not discussing the issue of personal salvation here, but he's discussing the place of Israel in salvation history. That is the issue uh, that is Paul's discussion here and his concern is, as it comes up there in the beginning of verse six, his concern is the question, is because God has made all these promises and He's done all these things for Israel or said all this stuff about Israel. And now Israel seems to have been set aside. They had all this stuff. They had the, uh, they had the covenants. They had the promises. They had the temple services. Uh, they had the fathers. And now all this stuff, it seems, according to what Paul said in other places and earlier in Romans, seems all of this stuff is irrelevant now. And the question is, has God's Word failed? And my argument is that the entire passage of Romans 9 through 11 is to demonstrate that God's word has not failed. That God is keeping his promises and he's fulfilling his word. And that's his argument. His argument is that God's word has not failed and he'll deal with a whole array of other issues that relate to that. But we need to keep in mind the main question that we're asking ourselves is, has God's word towards Israel and regarding Israel has that word failed? Okay. And she also brought up the question about where he says there at verse uh, 13, uh, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Uh, let me just ask you again. I'll ask you here and just kind of prime the pump a little bit here. Who's he talking about when he's talking about Jacob and Esau in this verse? Okay. So, How do we know that?
1: Well, as you mentioned last week, is that uh, we saw from the scripture. Remember, Jacob actually had um, encountered with Esau. Jacob was the one who valued. Jacob was the one that was offering gifts. Esau was just kind of like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> he's just he's just along with life and okay. he actually appear to have the. The birth life for all practical purposes. Okay. Okay.
0: That's one reason. Because in the in the encounter in the encounters we have between Jacob and Esau, the men, the actual individual men, Jacob and Esau, we see Jacob bowing down to Esau, we see Jacob giving gifts to Esau, we see Jacob calling Esau Lord. So Clearly, the prophecy in, or promise, as he calls it here in verse 12, the older will serve the younger, did not apply to these two individuals as men. Okay? But not only that, we know, remember where he says the older will serve the younger, which he quotes here in verse 12. That's a quote uh, from Genesis. That's a quote from the Old Testament. And do you remember what else God said to Rebekah when he said that? Concerning these two entities in her womb. What did he call them? He called them two nations. Them two nations okay. Actually, I want to point out something that's interesting here uh, in our translation. Certainly in my translation. You'll notice in verse, uh, in verse 10 it says, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man. And you'll notice the twins is what? It's italicized. In other words, it's not in the original. Paul did not say when she conceived twins. He simply says when she conceived. OK, secondly, in verse 11, it says for though, quote, the twins, it is what? Italicized again. Did you notice that? OK, so it's not for though the twins were not yet born, it's a, though the Whatever, we're not yet born, okay? So Paul actually isn't referring to the twins. He's referring to the nations that were in her her womb, okay? And that's what God said in Genesis. He said, there are two nations in your womb, and the older nation will serve the younger. And that is, in fact, what we see. And so Paul, in order to support or document his, his argument here, gives us verse 13, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, the quotation in verse 12 comes from Genesis. The quotation in verse 13 comes from where? Malachi. Malachi. It comes now 1,400 years or more after the incident uh, with Rebekah. Okay? And it has to do, as we observed, with the nation of Jacob, the Israelites, and the nation of Esau, the Edomites. And what Esau or the Edomites had done throughout the history uh, from the Exodus forward is the Edomites had always opposed Israel. They'd always resisted Israel, okay? And so eventually God brought the Edomites into subjection under the Israelites and thus the promise to Rebekah was fulfilled. It was fulfilled in the nations, not in the individuals, okay? So that's important for us to keep in mind that Paul's discussion here is a discussion about the role of people groups within salvation history. That's what he's discussing. Okay. And so, as I pointed out, there's really no discussion in these verses so far, anything about personal, individual salvation. He's not discussed anything about personal salvation so far. He's only discussed the role of these nations within salvation history. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I thought the thrust of this passage was more God's response and God's choice with these folks. Remember, um, you talked about uh, well, verse ten and eleven. It about even though this didn't happen or they weren't yet born, God yes does, did this. So the yes. thrust is here is what God decided
0: or that is choice. that is part of His emphasis. His His main emphasis. His main question He's going to address all the way through eleven. Uh, 9 through 11 is the question has God's word failed one of the questions that comes up in the course of that one incidental question is well what about God's choice in all this what you know how okay and that's some of the things we'll deal with today God's choosing uh, are are the issues that we deal with in 14 through 18 so yes that is a point Uh, it is a uh, but I think it's an incidental question to the main question of the passage okay great great question Okay, the other thing I want to just mention quickly before we go on is he says uh, there at the end, he says, Jacob have I, in verse 13, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And we pointed out that he's not saying there that God had some kind of emotional antipathy towards Edom, towards the descendants of Esau. Okay, it's not But, but this expression, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, comes from the Jewish idiom that we find in other places in the scriptures. Okay? The Jewish idiom where God and, or, or the writer or whoever, in order to show a distinction between two, how great is the distinction between two people in contrast to loving one speaks of hating the other. And the classic example we have of that is what? Hate your father and mother. Jesus says you can't be my disciple unless you hate your father and mother. And clearly we do not believe that what Jesus is saying there is we need to have some kind of emotional antipathy towards our parents or towards our family. But the point is that the it's a Jewish idiom that the that that in comparison to our love for our for God and for Christ and for following Christ, that our devotion, our love to Him is so great. That our love for our family appears, by contrast, in a sense, to be hatred. Okay, so in other words, it's a it's a way of accentuating the contrast. It's he's not actually saying here that he had some kind of emotional antipathy towards the descendants of Esau. Okay, uh, and uh, so, uh, th- but I want to. Uh, uh, there's one other thing we talked about. Uh, at considerable length last week, and I, and I need to elaborate on that a little bit more. And that is um, when he asks in verse six, and he says, "But it is not as though the word actually he states that he doesn't ask it, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And why do we know, according to verse six, that God's word for Israel, toward regarding Israel has not failed? What does verse six tell us?" What is Paul's argument? Not
1: the who
0: are Israel. OK? OK? So he makes a distinction between two Israels. He speaks of two Israels. Now Paul does clearly speak, and in the first five verses, as we pointed out last week, in the first five weeks, uh, first five verses, he speaks clearly of a physical or ethnic Israel. So, he, so he's not denying that there is an ethnic Israel. But the Israel to whom these covenant promises apply primarily is a different Israel. Okay, And so, remember, we had our little illustration up here. And we had here ethnic Israel. And then we had this other group. Okay, And this other group consists of... And this is getting ahead of the game. We won't really learn this until we get later in 9 and into chapter 10 but consists of believers. And the other name for this group of believers is what?
1: Church.
0: church okay, the church. All right. You know,
1: children and, and children of promise.
0: Yeah, children of promise, children of God, and all kinds of things. Okay, and, and we notice there's a little overlap. Okay, and the point that we made last week, and we need to keep this in mind as we go on through the passage is Paul sometimes speaks of this whole group as being the descendants of Abraham. He does it earlier in Romans. Okay. So sometimes when he's, when he's talking about what we might think of as true Israel, Paul actually is speaking of this whole group of believers, the church. But we discovered that in Romans 9-11, through 11, after we leave verse 5, He's no longer speaking of of true Israel in this sense, but he's speaking rather simply about this group right here, that overlap, okay? And we went into that last week and I showed you why we know that, uh, several reasons why we know that when Paul is speaking about true Israel in 9 through 11, he's not speaking about the church as a whole, including all the Gentiles, but he's simply talking about Ethnic Jews who are believers. Okay. And we called them, last week we called them true Israel. Uh, I used another phrase last week, called them spiritual Israel. I'd like to introduce another term that as I was thinking about this week, I think would be maybe a better term. And when we get later in chapter 9 and into chapter 10, you'll see why that is. We could think of them as righteous Israel. Okay. And uh, so this is righteous Israel or true Israel or spiritual Israel. And that's whom he's talking about, because the question is, has God's word to Israel failed? And he wants to demonstrate that God's word to Israel has not failed. But when he says God's word to Israel has not failed, he's referring to true Israel, not ethnic Israel. He's referring to true Israel. And this true Israel, we're going to discover later in chapters 9 and 10, get into 11, we're going to discover he calls the remnant. Because right now, it's just a little group. But we're going to find out that towards the end of God's salvation history, this group is going to expand and actually become, apparently, a majority of Jews. Okay. Well, so then we erase this diagram and I and and I just kind of let because the church is not really our consideration at this point. I redrew the diagram and I have here ethnic Israel and then within ethnic Israel, I had true Israel. OK, uh, because that's really kind of where Paul's focus is and what he wants to argue. OK, now there was a problem with this, though, and it came up. Uh, Milford's wife asked a question uh last week, and it kind of pointed out the, the, the problem in my diagram. So I want to redraw the diagram a little bit to make it a little clearer to you, okay, of what Paul is doing. When, when you encounter somebody who has a different opinion than you on something, whatever it is, politics or hunting or, or real estate or whatever it is, you encounter somebody and, the, and, and they have a different opinion than you on something, and you want to move them from their opinion to your opinion, how do you do that? How do you go about doing that? Tell them they're wrong. Tell them they're <laughs> wrong. You so say you're wrong and you just... Now, that is one approach and many of us have used that. To... <laughs> many of us have used that to little avail. But if you want to be successful at moving them from point A to point B, what do you do?
1: Well, children. Yeah,
0: <laughs> you inflict pain. You people. Well, you right. start sounding like a bunch of Baptists here. <laughs>
1: what I try to do is give the reasons why my point is valid, and give the reasons why their point is invalid.
0: Okay, but how do you persuade them?
1: I don't know how to do that. Please <laughs> tell me.
0: Okay, you do it respectfully. Okay. Okay, great. Exactly. You start well you should start with the things you agree on.
1: Sometimes that's really hard.
0: Yeah, sometimes that's really hard. It's hard to find those points of agreement. But but if you can find the points of agreement, what you do is you get the person to go you you say, okay now there's this and they go, Yeah, I agree with that and then you go and then there's this and they go, Yeah, we agree there. And what you're doing is you're moving them along the line. And what you want to show is if these points that we agree on are true, they lead logically to this point. Right? Isn't that, isn't that a preferable way of convincing people? Okay. Well, it's exactly what Paul is doing. But we need to be patient with him because he can't move from point A to point B overnight. Okay? It's going to take him a while to get to this point that God's word to Israel has not failed. Now he has made, in order to make his point that God's word to Israel has not failed, he has made this incredible assertion that gets the bristles up on the neck of any Jew. And that is the assertion that not everybody is Israel who is descended from Israel. And the Jew gets his bristles up on the back of his neck. So Paul sets out to show them that there is a true Israel distinct from ethnic Israel. That's what he wants to show them. So he wants to get them from this point where they think all of these people are righteous. To show them that only these people are righteous. He wants to get them to that point. And that's the process he's going through in these verses and in the verses that are going to follow. Okay, so really what I did last week is I just drew these two circles and it kind of left out Paul's argument. So in other words, we have this and Paul's arguing for this. And it kind of made that ambiguous. And when Donna asked her question last week, I thought, uh, okay my, my my diagram doesn't really show what paul is doing, so let 's redraw this diagram if
1: you put that close to the you like know'
0: uh, yeah that 's why i didn't put it there because I knew that's what you'd think uh, so we have then first we have i'm going to make my circle bigger we have the descendants of Abraham, and paul 's argument he wants to show that god that only only the children of the promise are true Israel. Right. So he starts out. And he says, OK, now, now we agree that these children of the promise that they're descendants of Abraham. Right. And all the Jews go. Yeah, yeah, that's what we agree. But then Paul says, but wait a minute. It's not all the descendants of Abraham. It's only who? The descendants of Isaac. So he limits his circle. So, these are all the descendants of Abraham. But out here we have uh, the descendants of Ishmael. And we have the the descendants of uh, Keturah, his second wife. Okay? So, they're out here. But it really only includes the descendants of Isaac. By promise. God made a promise. And he said that promise determined... That this circle would be smaller, and all the Jews go, "Mm-hmm, yeah, we agree with that. Yeah, we agree with that. Okay." So then he says, and then he says in verse, uh, verse ten, and not only this. So he's got him agreeing with him here, and then he says, and not only this, but also Rebecca. And so then he tells the story of Rebecca, and he draws the circle even narrower, right? Because God promised Rebecca that there were two nations within her, and the older would serve the younger. And so once again, the promise there was a promise to Abraham, and then there was a promise to Abraham, a promise regarding Abraham. And then there was a promise regarding Isaac. And now there's a promise regarding Jacob and he's showing how the circle's getting smaller and smaller. And the Jews are going right along with him and they're going, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, we agree with this. And so he says, he says God promised Rebekah that there were two nations within her and that the older would serve the younger. Jews are completely happy with this. Now, ultimately where he's headed but he's not going to get here until we get really into chapter 10 as he's getting to that true Israel circle. Okay? But we're not there yet. Which is why I answered Donna's question the way I did last week. I said, we're not there yet. I just had this circle and the big circle and I said, we're not there yet. Okay? So this really describes better what Paul is doing here. He's constricting, he's limiting the circle and he's showing that at each step that circle is limited by the promise of God that God made a promise and that promise restricts the circle. And ultimately, we're going to get down to this circle and we're going to find out that the promise is that salvation is in Christ through faith. And that's where he's headed, but he isn't there yet. Because he got to this point and he said, we got Jacob and we got Esau and God loved Jacob and he hated Esau and all of a sudden, people are going, whoa, wait a minute. Is God just? That's where we are in verse 14. He says in verse 14, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth so that he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And so, Paul has made the argument so far. We don't have this part of the argument yet. Paul has made the argument so far that God has chosen, he has made a choice based on God's freedom to do so, his sovereign freedom to do so. He has made a choice That he would bless Israel and that he would exclude from that blessing Edom. That blessing is the blessing of being part of God's redemptive plan. And so God has given this blessing to Israel, He has favored Israel. He's given him this great land. He's done all these. He talks about in Malachi. I've done all these great things for you. Meanwhile, Edom is over here, and Edom has been fighting me tooth and nail on this thing. And so I've been afflicting Edom, and I've been doing all this other stuff to Edom, and I've been making life really hard on Edom, and I've made him subservient to you because at every turn, from when Egypt, when Israel first came out of Egypt, Edom has been fighting me on this deal. And so he says, I have loved Israel, but I have, by comparison, hated Edom or Esau. Now, God has made a choice. He's made a choice to show mercy to Israel. And he has shown a choice to do otherwise with Edom. And the question is, was God just in that decision? And so he sets out now to answer that question. So this is a sub-question to the main question. The main question, has God's word to Israel failed? This is a sub-question that comes up in the discussion. Well, if this is true, what you're saying about Israel and Esau, about Jacob and Esau, Paul, if this is true, then what you're saying, isn't aren't you saying God is unjust? Because he's made this apparently arbitrary, capricious decision Bless Esau or bless Jacob and to resist and oppose Esau. And so that is the question he sets out to address. And he begins to address it in verses 14 through 18, but I want to emphasize he does not finish addressing it in 14 through 18. In fact, he doesn't finish addressing it for quite a while yet. So if you think that Paul has finished addressing the question of the justice of God, by the time you get to verse 18, you're going to come up with some serious misunderstandings of what Paul is telling us about God and God's choices. He's going to elaborate at length on this question of the justice of God. Okay? So don't look for an immediate answer to the question, is God just? But he, I mean, he gives an immediate answer and his immediate answer is there ain't no way, folks. <laughs> OK, there's just no way. OK, that's his immediate answer. But then he begins to explain it and he explains that he begins to explain it by addressing first the two critical issues in this choice that God has made. God has chosen to show favor to Israel and he has chosen to exclude Esau, Edom. Now, Paul is going to bring up two incidents in the history of the Jews, which are very close to their hearts. Again, once again, remember, what, what's he doing? He's trying to get them to identify with things they agree on, okay? Okay. These are things we agree on. Okay? So he's going to bring up two things that are very important to them that are very close to their heart. And one of them he's going to use to show how God chooses to, give, or that God chooses to give mercy to some. And the other he's going to use to show how God hardens them. And that this is a choice that God freely, sovereignly makes. He's not obligated to make this choice. He's not bound by anything to make this choice. He makes this choice freely because he is the sovereign God. That's Paul's argument. That in itself is not an adequate argument to refute the challenge to God's justice. If we simply say that God was free to choose, he could choose freely to show mercy to some and to harden others and we simply stop there, what we have said is, might makes right. And Paul is not arguing that might makes right. That's only the first part of his argument, but it is an important part of his argument. That God freely shows mercy to whom he will show mercy, and he freely hardens or raises up Those are synonymous terms in this passage. Others. Okay? So that's what we need to explore at this point. He says, no, there's no way God is unjust. And first of all, let's deal with this question of God choosing to show mercy to some. So we're really dealing with the first part of the Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated question. How can God just choose to love Esau? I mean, Jacob. How can He just choose to do that? And so that's the first question He addresses. And He addresses it with an example from the Old Testament, from Jewish history, and that example is what? Nope. First First one. We're, we're not dealing with the question of, of Esau being hated. We're dealing with the question of Jacob being Moses. Yes, okay. And he quotes here a quotation where God speaks to Moses and says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Where does that quote come from? God. Yes. Yeah. One of the fantastic stories in the story of the exodus is that time when Moses says to God, God, I need to see your glory. Will you show me your glory? And God says, "Okay, you come up on the mountain, you hide in the cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand over the rock and I will pass by. And as he's describing this to him in Exodus 32. And he's telling him what he's going to do. He says, I will pass by and I will say to you. So this is God telling Moses what he will say when this actually happens. He says, I will say to you, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Well, I've often read that story in Genesis and I've always gone... Why did God say that? Well, first of all, in 32, it's, he's just telling me he's going to say it. You actually don't get down to 32. You don't see it till you get down to 33 and he elaborates on it more exactly what God did say about mercy. But it is interesting that Moses has asked to see God's glory and God says, OK, I'll show you some of my glory and as I'm showing you my glory, I'm going to talk to you about my choices when it comes to mercy. I don't know why. Why that? Why not something else? Why not talk to me about your sovereignty? Why not talk to me about uh, about you know your holiness? Why not talk? Why talk about mercy? Well, what prompted Moses to ask to see God's glory? That's the backstory. When did this happen? Do you remember? It was right after Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments and found the entire nation of Israel doing what? Worshipping. Worshipping a golden calf. And actually in this Exodus, we don't get this part of the story. Moses tells us about it in Deuteronomy he says, he says, as I was getting ready to come down, God said to me, He said, just get out of my way, Moses, and I'll just wipe them out. And we'll start all over with you. And, and when you put the whole story together, Exodus and Deuteronomy, you find that Moses says, God, forgive these people. And if you don't forgive these people, if you won't forgive them just for forgiving them, then, then you block me out and forgive them. And Moses offers himself as an intermediary, as an atoning sacrifice for Israel, for the nation of Israel. Of course, of course God doesn't accept that because why? It wouldn't work, right? It wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Moses would have to die for his own sins, so that wouldn't work. So God doesn't receive that. But what God does do is he says, okay, I'll forgive them. And so you have the whole scene with God's judgment and some are judged and whatever, but the rest of the people, the leaders, the leaders of the idolatry are judged. But the rest of the people repent and they take off their ornaments and they acknowledge their sin and they ask for God's forgiveness and Moses intercedes for them and God forgives them and He says, okay, I'll forgive them. I won't destroy them. But then He says to Moses, but, what's the big But, I'll forgive you, but from here on out, what
1: I'm not, not presence, I'm not
0: going with you anymore. you're on your own, folks. I'm not going with you. I'll send an angel, but I'm not going with you. One of those great blessings of God that Paul talks about there in the first chapter, first verses of Romans, the presence of the glory of God, God says, no more. So what does Moses do? Well, yeah, it wasn't quite that bold, but what he did say was, in essence, that he says, if you're not going, don't lead us up from this place.
1: You know, this starts with something very real. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Now,
0: just at yeah. the church, well, your, you,
1: these are your people. Yeah,
0: they're your people. Yeah, and your name is, and that's important. He's saying your name is wrapped up in these people. Your glory is wrapped up in these people. What does he mean by that? God's salvation purposes, God's salvation historical purposes for Israel are wrapped up in his identity with Israel. And Pope Moses says, God, don't lead us up from this place if you're not going with us. And so then God says, Okay, I'll go with you. And it's then that Moses says, God, show me your glory. Moses has just been through two very harrowing experiences. One was the possibility of the nation of Israel being blotted off the face of the desert. And the second is the possibility of having to go forward without the presence of the glory of God. And in both cases, Moses stuck his neck out on behalf of the people. And now what he needs is a good dose of the glory of God to put himself back together. To get the strength to go forward. And God knows that's what Moses needs. And so God says, okay, I'll do that. And what's more, as I'm doing that, I'm going to talk to you about my mercy. And I'm going to talk to you about how My mercy is completely dependent on me and not on you. You see why God did that? You see why He said what He said to Moses? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. We read that sometimes with modern day spin on it. And we think that's some kind of harsh, selective, you know, Expression of God that He only wants to have mercy on a few people, and He picks those few people out. And that's how we sometimes view that. But the glory of that quotation is that God is saying, "I have had mercy on Israel, and I haven't had mercy on Israel because Israel is good. I haven't had mercy on Israel because Israel's done everything right. Here we're going forward right now because I have chosen to have mercy on you and on Israel." And that becomes more clear in chapter 33 where the incident actually happens and God actually does talk to him about mercy. So it's a tremendous expression of God's love for the people of Israel. But it pertains, now notice, it pertains not to the question of their individual salvation. But it pertains to the question of God's name and God's glory being revealed to the nations through His working in the nation of Israel. It has to do with salvation history and the role of the nation as a whole in salvation history. And He says, I have chosen to have mercy. And He expresses that mercy to Israel. Including them and not excluding them, not blotting them out now because of their sin, but continuing to show them mercy. And this is a freedom God has. God has the freedom to show mercy to people if He so chooses. Now, Paul has not told us anything about why God chooses to have mercy. What is the basis by which God chooses to have mercy? If there is any, he's not answered that question yet. And some people read those verses and conclude that we have no clue why God chooses to have mercy on some. But that is not the case. And as we go through chapters 9, particularly as we get into 10, and especially when we get into chapter 11, we're going to find out why God chooses to have mercy when He chooses to have mercy. But that question has not been answered yet. What we know simply is that God is sovereign and He's free to choose. And Paul wants to emphasize that. And so he's just when he does that. Well, so God can choose if he wants to bless the descendants of Jacob. He can choose if he wants to love Jacob, as he said there in verse 13. But that still leaves the very difficult question of Edom. Esau, the descendants of Esau. Esau have I hated. And so Paul says, "Okay, now God can choose to have mercy on whom He will have mercy." And he concludes there in verse 16. He says, "So then, it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but it depends upon God." Okay. Well, his point is that Israel, Paul's. Debaters here, these people who are arguing with Paul are saying, Well, you know, we're the descendants of Abraham. Okay, well, we're the descendants of Isaac. Well, okay, we're the descendants of Jacob. We're in. And God saying, or Paul saying, No. Has nothing to do with your lineage. And it has nothing to do with your works. It's not according to the man who wills or runs, but it's according to God. God mercy by definition is unmerited. When you need mercy, you're in no place to demand it, right? You can't demand mercy. Mercy is something that by its very definition has to come totally from the one giving mercy. That's the very nature of mercy, right? If I need mercy, I'm. there's nothing in me. You know, it's all if I need mercy from you, I I have nothing to offer you to say, you know, give me mercy because I've earned it or I deserve it. That's the very nature of mercy. Well, so let's move forward then. So his next question then is we've dealt with the question of God loving Jacob. But what about the question of God hating Esau? Remember, we're not talking about some kind of emotional antipathy there that God has but that rather that God has chosen to to resist and fight against Esau, Edom. And he's plagued them and he's caused them all kinds of problems and their crops won't grow and all kinds of things they've had because they have resisted Israel. And, And so God has resisted them. And the question is, is God just when he does that? And so Paul goes back and he brings up another story from ancient Jewish history. And this is a story not after the exodus in the wilderness, as the first one was, but this is a story before the exodus. This is a story of Moses' encounter with Pharaoh. And God has sent Moses back to free the people of Israel. And he has gone back and he's gone to Pharaoh and he said to Pharaoh, "Let my people go." And Pharaoh said, "Nothing doing. Nothing doing. I'm not going to let them go." And the Scripture tells us there in chapter eight of Exodus, it tells us that you have, you have Moses comes back. He asks, he tells Pharaoh to let his people go, and and Pharaoh refuses. And it says his heart was hardened. And then we go on a little bit later in chapter 8. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart. So what we get is we get the picture of Pharaoh as this process of encounters with Moses go on. This picture progressively of Pharaoh hardening his heart. And it says in chapter 8 a couple times that he hardened his heart. And then we get, we've gone through about five or six of the, I think six of the plagues have gone on. And Pharaoh has been repeatedly hardening his heart, according to the story. And then we get to chapter 9, and God says to, to uh, Moses, He says, Now you go and you tell Pharaoh this. In fact, let's go over there to Exodus chapter 9, because I want you to read this uh, to get the backstory here. Because this is where our quote comes from. And in Exodus chapter 9, in verse 13, he says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, already I think six of the plagues have already occurred. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Now, there's not been anything said there about Pharaoh's hardening heart there. But Paul uses this passage to refer to God hardening Pharaoh's heart. In Romans 9. But let's consider the story. Moses comes at the word of God and says to Pharaoh, now listen, if I had wanted to, I could have totally wiped you out. I could have killed you all. We're we're already past plague 6. So he's already shown to Pharaoh what he can do. And then he says, now listen, you know, I, I could have just, just totally wiped you out. But I'm not. And the reason I haven't is because I still have some more places <laughs> in. Good news. <huh? laughs> I left you alive so I can plague you some more. Why does he do that? To show, his honor and glory. to show his honor and glory to proclaim his name throughout the whole earth. And that's the verse that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9. Now, after this, it begins to talk to us periodically about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, ultimately with Pharaoh hardening his own heart. So we begin with Pharaoh hardening his heart. Then we have this encounter in chapter 9. Then we have God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And we have Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Okay? And the story goes on like that. And on some occasions, it just simply says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Well, what is Paul trying to get at? in Romans chapter 9. Well, <clears throat> let me get back over there. Paul says that God said to Pharaoh through the Scriptures, he says, for this very purpose I raised you up. Now, we've just read the quote from the Old Testament. It's actually a little bit different. In my translation, it says, I've kept you alive. In the context, what Paul is, or what God is saying is, I have kept you alive so far because I I could have just wiped you out. When when Moses first came and said, Let my people go, and you said no, I could have just blotted you out all out. But I have chosen instead to keep you and the rest of the Egyptians alive. Number 1 we need to realize that when Paul when excuse me when God is speaking to Pharaoh here and he says you I have raised you up the you is directed at Pharaoh but Pharaoh stands as a representative for all the Egyptians that's clear from the passage we read in Exodus 9 So in other words it's not just Pharaoh who is hardened but it is not it's not Excuse me, it is Pharaoh that's hardened, but it's not just Pharaoh who is raised up, that is, who is kept alive. It is all the people of Egypt have been kept alive. So what we discover is that Pharaoh and all the Egyptians, according to the passage in Exodus 9, that Pharaoh and all the Egyptians are part of God's salvation plan. His historical salvation plan. Just as the children of Israel are part of God's salvation plan, and God works that by showing mercy to Israel, the Egyptians and Pharaoh as the head and representative of all the Egyptians has been kept alive and his heart has been hardened in order that God's redemptive purposes can be accomplished in history through the, hardening of Israel, through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the keeping alive of the Egyptians. So he says, I've done this. I have raised you up. Now, Paul, when he gets to the next verse, he reaches his conclusion in verse 18. He says, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. So in some sense, Paul is equating hardening with having been raised up. Because you'll notice in verse 17, he didn't say anything about hardening. He just said, I've raised you up. So there's some sense in which to Paul, the idea of God raising Pharaoh up and, heart and, and, and keeping him alive through all these plagues and all the children and all the people of Egypt, that that, 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 is, that, that has been made possible by Pharaoh's heart being hardened. First, by himself, and secondly, by God, because it just got so bad that even Pharaoh probably couldn't have hardened his heart enough to be able to withstand the plagues that he was withstanding. So God hardened his heart. But here is the exciting thing. This, I tell you, this this is so exciting to me. <laughs> I was thinking and meditating on this. Yes, I was sitting down on the patio yesterday morning early and, and studying this passage and I was getting so excited. I, was, I can't wait to talk about this because this is good stuff. Why did God harden Pharaoh? Why did God raise him up? Why did God keep him alive? Why did he do that? To
1: demonstrate his power,
0: to demonstrate his power in him and what? that His name might be proclaimed proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God's hardening of Pharaoh and His keeping alive Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, He did that in order that God's name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth that His mercy might be available to all the nations. He makes that clear by the time we get to Romans 11. He did this in order that His mercy would be available to all nations. Now, here is the profound thing to realize about the hardening of Pharaoh. If Pharaoh had not been hardened by God, there would not have been the last four plagues. If there had not been the last four plagues, there would never have been a Passover night. If there had been no Passover night, there would have been no Passover lambs. And if there had been no Passover lambs, there would have been no Passover lambs. How do I know that? How do I know that if God had not did what He did with Pharaoh, there would not have been a Christ? Because Scripture tells us. We don't learn it for a long time after this. We have to read all the way through the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You have to read all that stuff we have to get into the book of Joshua we get into the book of Joshua and Joshua sends the spies in and who do they encounter? They encounter a harlot in the city of Jericho and this harlot has heard of the glory of Yahweh But we know that she has not only heard of the glory of Yahweh, but she has cast her lot with Him. She is a woman of faith. A harlot. But she is a woman of faith, and she has cast her lot with the God of Israel because she has heard of His glory in Egypt. And she's ready for those spies when they come. But here's the exciting part, folks. She not only helped those spies, but she became part of the messianic line. She is the mother of Boaz, the grandfather of David. Had God not hardened Pharaoh's heart, a man who had already hardened his own heart, had God not hardened Pharaoh's heart, there would have been no Christ. Because the Christ came through a woman who many miles away and 40 years later knew of the glory of God as revealed in Pharaoh and in Egypt and believed in Him and became part of the Messianic line. Well, uh, we will go on next week, but there are a couple things that we still need to talk about. So we'll talk about these next week and then go on. One of these is there are three important things we need to understand about hardening. Three important things we need to understand about harden, and I don't have time to talk about those today, so we'll talk about those next week okay and then uh the second thing is is clearly as I understand this passage, he is talking about people groups as they uh, and the role they play in redemptive history, okay. He is not talking about individuals. There's been nothing. The only kind, con- the only sense in which he's talked about individuals and so far, it's been Jacob and Esau. But we find that when he's talking about Jacob and Esau, he's actually talking about the nation Jacob and Esau. And now we have Moses and we have uh, and we have Pharaoh. But clearly, when he's talking about Moses, he's talking about his mercy to the whole nation of Israel. And in Pharaoh, we're talking about. Again, Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt and their role in redemptive history. There's nothing been said so far. Now, maybe we'll encounter something yet, but we have encountered nothing in chapter 9 yet that has anything to do with personal salvation, personal predestination, or personal perdition. Nothing. And we'll elaborate on that next week. Okay, thank you.